Oscar Combs here, and I want to put one rumor to rest, once and for all. The story is that Rafferty's goes all out for sports fans. And let me tell you, it's absolutely true. Confirmed. And fans love Rafferty's right back because the food is so terrific. Serve fresh. Serve fast. Serve friendly. Lunch or dinner. Rafferty's menu is jam-packed with all your favorites. Steaks, prime rib, chicken, ribs, delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at Rafferty's. It's the tastiest place in town. Welcome to Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dogs. Episode 68 features part one of Oscar's conversation with the former head coach of the UK men's tennis team, Dennis Emery. Hailing from New Albany, Indiana, Coach Emery's another homegrown Hoosier who found his way to the Big Blue Nation. With a major in theology, it was suggested that Dennis Emery pursue coaching, and by making his way to Austin P for five years, Coach Emery was able to catch the attention of Kentucky Athletics Director Cliff Hagen, which ultimately put him in place as UK's tennis coach for 30 years. You will hear about some of the relationships he developed during his time at UK, notable such as Cliff Hagen, former football coach Jerry Claiborne, Kyle Macy, and Dr. Otis Singletary. You will also hear about Hillary J. Boone and the contribution he made to the University of Kentucky's tennis program and how Coach Emery and Cliff Hagen pulled it off. Coach Emery reflects on some of his players' memorable matches and we'll learn how the sport of tennis affected the Emory family. Coach Emory's numbers at UK are impressive. 568 wins at Kentucky, 23 NCAA tournament berths, and he's a three-time SEC Coach of the Year. Along with a multitude of accolades, he's also the newest member of the University of Kentucky Athletics Hall of Fame. This is Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dogs, and his guest, Coach Dennis Emory. Dennis, special moments coming up for you in your life here at Kentucky. Indiana guy that come along and spent his life here, last 35, 36 years. Uh, it's got to be a very special moment next month when you go into the UK Athletics Hall of Fame. Yeah, you know, it's something that just really means a lot to me. There's not a lot of coaches in the UK Hall of Fame. You know, it's mostly a lot of players. So to be recognized as a coach and a coach only, I mean, it's a, you know, I'm in the Intercollegiate Tennis Hall of Fame. Um, was a first ballot guy on that. And you're a first ballot guy here. You just yeah. become of the time away from coaching to be able to do that, which at Kentucky you have to be out of the game for a minimum of five years. That's right. Or 65 years old and look like you're trying to crack them both about the same time. <laughs> that, that's right. But um, it, it means so much more to be to be a member of the UK Athletics Hall of Fame than it does the, the Collegiate Tennis Hall of Fame. And I'll, I'll say this and we'll discuss it a little bit later too. How special is it to be going in with one of your star players? Well, I never thought it would happen, you know, because he, my last match as a college coach was Eric Quigley's uh, NCAA singles final. And, you know, then we started looking at things and, uh, you know, they never put two people in from the same sport. And so I just assumed Quigley would get in this first time and I wouldn't. And then that would probably be held off two years because they don't always 
put picked somebody, the same sport two years yeah, in a row. two years in a row. So I kind of thought, mm, you know, I'm probably going to be, you know, a long way off getting in. How did our journey start? You grew up in across the river in Indiana. Right. I grew up in New Albany, Indiana. Uh, you know, just one day, a guy who was a friend of mine, who was a very good player, ended up being an NCAA All-American at Georgia. His name was Charlie Ellis. Asked me, he said, can you come out and just feed me some balls? You know, I'm, I'm getting ready for the uh, state high school championships. And we were, uh, I was a ninth grader at that point in time. And I said, sure, look, I'll do whatever you want me to do, but I have no idea what you're talking about, you know, when you're saying beat me some balls. So that's how I got started in tennis with he and his family. Uh, he had a private court there in New Albany, and so they, they both gave me private lessons, you know, for a little bit. And I ended up, uh, you know, just falling in love with the game, essentially, and being a really late starter at age 16, you know, into competitive tennis. Did you play other sports? I I did. I tried to play basketball. While I played through junior high school, I just had no chance. And I really didn't play any other sports. I played baseball, but uh, just fell in love with tennis, didn't want to do anything else. Growing up, you have a large family. You have brothers, sisters. No, I'm an only child. Only child? Yeah. And after high school, you went to college? At I actually went to uh, – I use Southeast because I knew I could play there. I had started late. I wanted to, I really wanted to continue to play. I felt like I maybe wanted to go into coaching at that time. I had two options basically, which I wanted to go into the ministry or I wanted to go into coaching. Uh, so I went to the, you know, the junior college for two years. And then I decided to transfer to Carson Newman, which had a really good small college tennis team. We finished top five in the country and, yeah, you know that that really was the thing that got me headed down the down the path. I majored in theology there at Carson Newman, uh, did a ministry course, and at the end of the course, you know, I, you have to preach, and so I basically preached a sermon. The minister said, "You know, what are your other options? You, <laughs> <laughs> you want to coach? You you seem to really enjoy coaching in tennis. Maybe you should go that route." So that was that was kind of where I started going down the coaching road. And then you headed to Austin P. Well, I, I went to work for a guy named Harry Hopman, who was a legendary uh, tennis coach. He was Australia's Davis Cup captain, uh, kind of the biggest name in coaching ever to that point. And, you know, for some reason I felt like he saw something in me and he really encouraged me to, to pursue – coaching you know and he wanted me to he kind of wanted to take me and use me to do some stuff with davis cup teams but my heart was really in the college coaching and i applied probably for 100 jobs that summer and just a gift from god you know i applied at austin p and just sent a letter didn't really even know that the job was open and the guy called me and said how how'd you know this job was open you know, and can you come up and interview this weekend? And I said, sure, you know, how would I do that? And he said, well, buy your ticket and come on up. You know, if you're interested in the job, buy your ticket, come on up. So that's what I did. And I sat down and he just said, anybody that can work for Harry Hopman, you know, can work for me, can coach my tennis team. And so that's how that got, that, that got going. But 
you know, I don't feel like it was a coincidence. I felt like I was really led to where I was supposed to be. You spent five years at Austin P. Yeah, five great years. Just loved being at Austin P. You know, Clarksville for me was a big city. Um, you know, so I'm in a big Division One program, and we did really, really well. My first three years, we it took three years to kind of get it on track. Um, but my last two years, we won the OVC regular season. Uh, the coach at Murray back then was a guy named Benny Purcell, who you probably are familiar with, who was, you know, just a legendary basketball player there at Murray and had taken over the head coaching job in tennis and had built a really good program. Um, we beat uh, Illinois. We beat Vandy. You know, we beat uh, – all the Ole Miss, you know, we beat all those really good schools. And then my last year, we beat Kentucky twice, which, you know, we beat them at our place. And then we came up here and beat them just a scheduling quirk. You know, we came up here and played them again and beat them again. So that kind Did of, that get Cliff Hagen's attention? You know, I, I don't know if it did or didn't. I would <laughs> like to think that it did. Uh, that, that was an interesting interview process, you know, Tell me more about it. Well, he, he brought me up on an interview, you know, the job opened up and he had some local guys he was looking at, you know, and at that time, what the Kentucky job was, was, uh, Richard Vimon, a name you might be familiar yes. with, who's an attorney. Used he, to be a council person. Yeah. On the city council. He was the tennis, you know, he was the tennis coach and did a great job, very limited resources. Uh, but did a fantastic job, and uh, but it wasn't a full-time position. And so when uh, Cliff brought me up and the first time and he interviewed me and I took the bus up here, you know, took Greyhound bus up here. This sounded a lot like Keith Madison's trip up. Is that right? From uh, Mississippi to Starkville. <laughs> well, the difference probably being mine, I, it took three interviews for him to hire me. You know, I, I came up and he called me like two weeks later and said, can you come up again? You know, so I got on the bus again, you know, and came up again and uh, stayed at Yoakum's Motel over there. A few people may remember that. And then didn't hear anything for a while. And then he called me again and said, come up again and offer me the job. And, uh, and I must say it was probably part-time It was part as, and as far as pay. Yeah. Well, it was part-time in every aspect, you know. Of, no of fringe that. benefits. Yeah. No, no. Uh, my wife was pregnant with our, with our child, with Matthew. So we didn't have any benefits like that, you know, no retirement. And the, the pay was 13100 If it makes you feel any better, I, I did some checking. And the overall athletics budget in 1982 – was $3.2 million. Is that right? Total for the department. <laughs> well, you know, while I, um, you know, 13000 that was actually a pay cut for me coming from Austin P. you know, it, where it was a full-time position. Um, and they really countered. They made a really substantial counteroffer at that time, you know, because we were winning and we were doing really good. We were, was it just the matter of that you were coming to an SEC school? Yes. I, I really wanted, I, as I told my wife back then, you know, look, you have to understand, you know, if they offer me the job on no salary, I'm taking it, you know, because I just want to be in the conference that badly. And I want to, I want to do it. And, so that, that was that was how I ended up there. Mr. Hagen, you know, everything I am, I basically owe to him because 
I'd like to think he saw something. It took a little time. It took three interviews <laughs> to see something. But I'd like to think that he, you know, saw something in me. And we remain very good friends to this day because, you know, my daughter's named after his wife, Martha. And, um, you know, very grateful for to him. So when you first get here, one of the first people you come in contact with is a guy by the name of Jerry Claiborne. Yeah, I, I love Coach Claiborne. You wanted my if if you ask me, you know, who's your uh, coaching mentor? Who's your who would you want to be like as a coach? It would be Coach Claiborne, just a really special guy. You know, he's the kind of guy that you know. There's not a lot of those guys running around anymore. You know, Coach Claiborne, who just so into the coaching aspect of it, and um, you know, he we would play tennis. You know, once a week. In fact, he loved tennis and told me one time, you know, look. Uh, you've got the job that I really want, which is the head coach at Kentucky. And I said, well, coach, I mean, you, you could have had it, you know, you should have gone for it. And, and he said, yeah, but, but Dennis, you just can't make any money coaching tennis at this level. You know? So, so that was um, a great relationship with him. We played once a week. We had a group of five people who played back then. And one was Mr. Hagen and one was Jerry Claiborne. One was a guy named Herb Case uh, who, was became our biggest not our biggest donor but our biggest supporter and Kyle Macy who had not yet taken the Moorhead job and me and I was kind of the fifth in there and there was always somebody who was not going to play on that Wednesday at noon uh very seldom was it not coach Claiborne um I remember one of the first times I played with coach Claiborne you know for me I'm just going down there it's it's a lunchtime doubles you know for him, it was like an all-out war. You know, he's the most competitive person I've ever been around. And Cliff has to be number two. Yeah, Cliff's right there. <laughs> yeah, and Kyle's not way behind, you know. So uh, I, I'll never forget, you know, he we were playing on court four down there in our indoor building with those steel beams down there. And, you know, they hit the ball to me, and I hit an angle shot. You know, things that those guys – you know, a while they're way, way, way better athletes than me, you know, they just don't have the racket in their hand <laughs> nearly as much as I did. So I could, I could do a lot of things that they couldn't do on the tennis court, but I had an angle into the wall over there and coach Claiborne flew right into the wall, flew right into that beam, hit that beam hard, bounced off, looked up like, okay, who won that point? You know, but I'll never forget Oh my God! You know this is the difference between football and tennis. You know, as I'm, you know, I'm, I'm I can't compete at that level. And so, but a tremendous, tremendous man. You you had other interactions in a sort of indirect way that uh, when you first came here, you spent some time living with some of the football players. That's right. When I came up here, you know, we had to sell our house down in Clarksville, and my wife was pregnant, and she had to stay down there. Because, you know, she had the benefits, you know, with her job, she had the benefits. So we, I stayed in the football dorm that first year and my goodness, you know, I'll never forget, you know, I would come back from the weekend tennis trip or going to Clarksville to see my wife and I would come back into that football dorm. You well, know. Now, was this Coach Claiborne's second year? This would have been his first year. First year. Okay. Yeah. And the I 0 lived, 10 one year. Yes. Okay. Yes. 
with all that that implies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, my next door neighbor was Paul Calhoun. He was kind of everybody's all American. And um, they were, you know, there was a couple empty rooms every weekend. You know, there's a couple different, more empty rooms. So it just was a kind of a uh, indoctrination into what big time college athletics was. And, you know, but particularly with Coach Claiborne, you know, he was he wanted to do it a certain way. He had a, a moral code and a moral compass that, you know, was unwavering and he wanted to do it that way. He wanted to he had to clear those guys out so he could move on. You were pretty much known as a coach in that same mode throughout your career. I'd like to think so. You know, I I really would like to think, you know, of somebody who tried to do it the right way. But Coach Claiborne had a big impact on me in, uh, in, the, in that way of thinking. So now you're at Kentucky. You're trying to rebuild a new program. How do you go about going into an SEC school that has really placed very, very limited uh, emphasis on a sport, both monetarily and otherwise? My first year, we had some talent. Even though my Austin P team had beaten them, my Austin P team won because you know we were better. You know we were actually better than Kentucky, uh, and Murray was beating Kentucky at that time also. So the SEC was, you know, just becoming the best conference in the country. The Pac-10 had always dominated. The SEC was now beginning to start putting money into it. We weren't so much at Kentucky yet, but Georgia under Dan McGill had become a national power. They were hosting the NCAAs. LSU hired a guy named Jerry Simmons the same year that I came in. They, you know, went to an NCAA final. So Tennessee had Mike DePalmer. He was he had taken over. He brought in Paul Anacone and you know, so all these teams were just on the rise kind of at the same time. We were kind of a second tier of that at that time. Uh, but what I tried to do was I had a guy named Joe Lightsey who at number one, who was actually a very good player. He just hadn't been exposed to, to things. He was a senior. And then I had a guy named John Varga on my team who was a great leader, and Paul Varga, who played number three for us, who later became the CEO of Brown Foreman you know, a fantastic leader. But what, what we really had those first five years was no real stars. You know, Paul Varga athletically was as good as anybody I ever coached. But we, we didn't have any stars. We just had a bunch of kids that were really competitive. And so we really built, built around trying to be very, very competitive. And then the one thing I tried to do, I'd like to think it was smart, was, you know, we tried to, become the best indoor team in the country because you know ucla they didn't have indoor courts there's no way they could claim they were going to be the best indoor georgia had four indoor courts there's no way they could claim they were building their program around that florida you know so what i tried to do was find a niche and try to say we're going to be the best indoor team in the country we're going to try to recruit big guys who are really aggressive that came forward and that worked for that worked for a long time because, you know, that it was something different. We were unique. And um, around 86, 87, we started hosting the national indoors. And we got a wild card into that. So I had to raise $25,000 a year to do that in Louisville. But the Varga family, uh, it would have been in 87, but the Varga family... Um, 
owned an indoor tennis club that had a thousand seats. So <laughs> it was, you know, perfect. And, and so we hosted that and that was kind of the, there were two th- key things that really got us over the hump, which was hosting the national indoors there for, I think it was 18 straight years. And then, you know, cause we always got in. So whether we were top 15 in the country or not, we always got in and our best wins early on came indoors at, in that tournament. And then raising the money for the Hillary J Boone indoor center was the other thing that, that really got us over the hump. But I'm sorry to answer your question. You know, I really felt like, uh, hosting that national indoors, being a national indoor team, you know, that, that was a big thing for us. You're in a rural state in the South in the SEC. How did you recruit the kids to come here? Uh, what, what was the focal point? The indoor championships? Yes. You know, what we really went for, what we really worked to achieve was, you know, look, you go to Florida, it rains in Florida. You're going to miss days practicing in Florida. If you're a serious player, you can't take days off. It's a little bit of baloney, you know, but... <laughs> but I like that a little bit. <laughs> but, you know, you could sell people on, look, we have an indoor center. You're not going to miss a day here, you know, and we're going to work harder than everybody else. And, you know, everybody says we're going to work harder than everybody else. But we really actually tried to work harder than everybody else. And I think that was a big difference for us as we tried to come to work every day and, you know, get better, get, you know, accomplish things. And because we weren't able to recruit the top tier athlete, you know, and really ever, you know, we really never, we only really signed two guys that were two or three guys that were, would be considered top 10 players. And one of those was my son. Uh, You know, he was a gimme. So, because we never... Well, not necessarily. <laughs> Your wife had something to yeah. that. <laughs> So, you, you had to... You know, we really felt like we had to work harder than everybody else if we were going to be good. And, you know, we it was easy to sell the players on, you know, look, we got to work harder. And, and so, they, they all bought in for the most part. I would say over a 30-year period, they really bought in. In addition to coaching, though, it seems that as much as a part of coaching was your success was that you had to go out and build your program literally from the outside. I mean, there was nobody out here earning money, uh, recruiting influential people to help you. I mean, you, you did that yourself. I mean, you, you, you were your own salesperson as far as generating money from Hillary Brune and the Varga family and people like that. Right. Well, the Vargas, you know, they love tennis. They owned that tennis club. And so they, you know, they, they were easy. You know, <laughs> you were doing that in Louisville though. Yeah, no, that's true. So that was, I mean, how point. were you able to pull that off? Well, I had a, a guy who was a really good friend of mine. His name was Herb Case, just a really special guy and a nationally ranked tennis player. And, when Eddie Sutton, you know, he used to go to practice every Wednesday. You, you may know this, you know. And when he came in, uh, when Eddie Sutton came in, he asked Coach Sutton, you know, can I come to practice on Wednesday? And Coach Sutton said, absolutely, we'd love to have you. And he went, and he called to come back the next Wednesday, and Eddie said, 
no, you're, you know, that was a one-time thing. <laughs> you know, you're, you're not going to come every day like with Coach Hall, you know, every Wednesday. So he called me and he said, I want to get involved with tennis. If I can't be involved with basketball, I want to get involved with tennis. And he lived in dentist in Louisville, uh, went to the biggest church in Louisville there, you know, had all kinds of contacts with influential people. And so that, that was how, you know, we did that tournament. It was really built around Dr. K's and how he – you know, his friends, friends of Herb, essentially. So as you get up into the mid and the late 80s, and we'll get back to some of the outstanding matches you had, but uh, your family's growing. You've got three children, two boys and a girl, and it looks like they sort of enjoy playing tennis too. Yeah, yeah. My son was a really good player. He was number one in the country until he got injured he got he injured his eye tell me a little bit about that well we were playing at baylor and uh you know he's playing the deciding match and it's a huge match i think both of us were top eight we're talking about matthew matthew yeah uh they i think we're both top eight in the country you know at that time and in fact the three of the top five players in the country were playing in that match in college so um he just gets hit in the eye with the serve. Uh, ball comes off his racket, catches him in his left eye, and he's legally blind in that eye. So that ended, you know, that essentially ended his career. That's a career-ending injury. So that was that very difficult to deal with. You're, you know, you're going to maybe ask me what's your most disappointing moment in sports, you know, uh, in college. And, I mean, you know, on a competitive level, that would – that would certainly be it because not only does that hit you personally, but you know, that impacts your team because I had him walk on because we only have four and a half scholarships. So, you know, he was a great player. You can't lose, but he did come back and, and still, he compete. came back and played, but he couldn't really play outdoors. He could play indoors mm -hmm. where the lighting is constant, mm -hmm. where you can hear the ball, mm -hmm. you know, believe it or not, it's a big, big factor is being able to hear the ball indoors so he came back and had a good senior year but he missed two years and that i you know had he not gotten hurt i think that was you know we had a real chance to win the national championship that year we uh, we lost in the elite eight the year he got hurt and you know you throw him in there and it's a whole new ball game yeah i mean i you know we lost to tennessee in the elite eight and my guy, you know, my my guy that we put in had supposedly a career in the back injury. So I had two guys with career in the injury. Now, Matthew couldn't play at all. But Grunditz, you know, he ends up losing that match down there. Um, he's up in the third and his back went out. You know, it just went out. He just couldn't move. It's the only time, Oscar, I've, I, it was at Texas A&M and I just sat down in the court and cried because, you know, it, it was, that was our shot to win it all. Mm -hmm. it, you know, not with, not with our best team, you know, but it was our shot to win it all. And, uh, we had beaten Tennessee twice that year. They were four in the country. We had beaten them twice national indoors and, and at Tennessee. So we were certainly going to be in the final four. Yeah. You had two other children, Andrew and a daughter, Merritt. Yep, yep. Merritt played at Alabama, team captain at Alabama. Um, had a great career down there for four years. And then Andrew uh, is now working for UK in facilities. Um, 
and is in charge of the tennis center as well as Memorial <laughs> Coliseum. Um, and and Matt's on the staff now as assistant coach. Matthew just took the job at Kennesaw State. Oh, he did. Okay. So he's the as of one week ago, he's the uh, head coach for the first time at age thirty-five wow. at Kennesaw State. Very excited. Can't wait to can't wait to you know run his own show and do mm-hmm. his own thing. And then Andrew, before he came back to the university, he was a special ops marine uh, in Afghanistan in Iraq. So he deployed twice over there. So very, very proud of, of him. Uh, you, you had some tremendous moments throughout your career here. Uh, going back to the eighties, you had one championship against Georgia that everybody remembers to this day. Yeah. You, you're talking about now, which match are you talking about? The 87 match? Yes. Okay. Well, in 87, we played, we played Georgia here. You know, we had never beaten Georgia. They were the dominant power, and we played them here, and we beat them um, 15-13. They, they played singles first and then doubles. We beat them 15-13 here uh, in a tiebreaker, third set tiebreaker. The match probably took five hours um, to play, and... Uh, you know, my memory after that match, it, it was great, great match. There was over a thousand people at that match, you know, the, at a time when you didn't have over a thousand people at, at college tennis matches. But Dan McGill, it was my first win over Dan McGill. So that meant a lot. Um, this was also the area you just got the Hillary Boone facility. Correct. Uh, tell us what that meant to you leading up to this kind of a it was, match. Well, you know, we played at the Lexington Tennis Club. So, you know, the players would have to leave. They'd have to drive out there. Uh, you know, wasn't, wasn't easy. It wasn't our place. You couldn't schedule around it. You had nothing to show recruits, really. Uh, you know, except they did have a hot tub. You know, when we got our place, we didn't have a hot <laughs> tub. So that was that was good. But uh, it just gave us a home and uh, – you know, something that, you know, an identity, like say, we wanted to be the best indoor team in the country. So that gave us a real identity. We had our own place at that point in time. It wasn't a lot, you know, when they built it, they had to, they had to get a shovel in the ground by, (laughs) you know, by July one. So they just did a design build. It had four courts and two bathrooms. And seemed to me like I remember something about there was a little debate over the design of the building that it was meeting, expectation within the campus construction scheme of things. Well, Hillary, who was, you know, our team captain in 1939 and, um, quite a character. Yes. You know, I love Mr. Boone, you know, (laughs) I I owe so much to Mr. Boone, you know, to this day. Um, but Mr. Boone, um, I called him as a cold call and said, Hey, you were a team captain in 1939. We want to build this indoor tennis center. You know, is it possible for me to bring another letterman and come out and see you? You know, and he said, sure, come on out. And his farm is Wimbledon Farm. Mm -hmm. You know, so we drive out there. And I'm a very naive, you know, 28, 29-year-old guy, you know, and don't, I've just never been in this world and uh, that he's in. Uh, one of the original investors in Humana, one of the five original investors with W.T. Young and others. So 
I sit down, we're on his porch, and I brought who I brought with me was Billy Evans, you know, who also played number one on the tennis team. From Louisville. Yeah. Well, from Berea. Yeah. But yeah. Living in living Louisville, in Louisville at that time. Graduated. Yeah, with Kentucky Fried, Fried Chicken, Chicken, senior yeah. vice president of Kentucky Fried Chicken. So we go out there, and I had my drawing, you know, of this, this building. And we sat there, and we talked for 55 minutes about Kentucky basketball with Billy Evans and Billy Evans's career. And Mr. Boone looks at his watch and he said, Oh, I have to leave in five minutes. I'm, I'm sorry. Show me what you got for the tennis thing. So I made a five minute pitch. Literally. Here's the, here's the drawing. You know, we'd love to have you involved. This is, you know, it's a half a million dollars, uh, you know, to get us going and, uh, you would get the naming rights for this if you wanted it. So, Last 30 seconds of the conversation, he says, I'll get back to you in six weeks. Otis Singletary's coming to see me. And Otis wants me to, to give some money also. He wants me to name something. I'm glad you're telling this story because I was going to ask you about <laughs> if you had. This is good. Yeah. So, and I said, oh, you know, interestingly, you know, interestingly enough. So you, you know, saw your money sort of floating away yeah. in lieu of something else. Yeah, and I said, Mr. Boone, so what do you think? You know, what do you, well, you know, I'm just curious, what do you think? And he said, well, you know, Otis is going to ask me about the swimming pool, which became the Lancaster Aquatic Center. He said, he's going to ask me about the swimming pool, and I'm not a swimmer, you know, I'm a tennis player. And I thought, okay, this is good news, and this, <laughs> this is bad, bad news, <laughs> you know. So I go back to um, I go back to Mr. Hagen, and I say, you know, hey, just so you know, you know, I, I made this visit, and there's some potential there. I don't know what's going to happen. So, you know, I get this phone call from Cliff Hagen, and he says, uh, Coach, I, I need you to come on over. Uh, I was in his office and walking out when you walked in to have that meeting <laughs> with that him. Right? And later you told me about it. You're, yeah. And you're thinking, I put all this work in. Yeah. And now I'm going to get shot out for a swimming facility. <laughs> but it ended up good. Going yeah. Ahead. So he, he says, uh, you know, Otis wants us to come see him. And so, you know, like say, I'm 29 years old. I, you know, have no clue what's going on and so larry ivy and cliff and i walk over there larry being the the money manager at that time we get in and dr singletary i, I can't use the language that he used <laughs> you know and he said are you coach emory and i said yes sir you know and he said well let me tell you something you know and he looked at cliff he said cliff if i lose my faculty club because of some t dumb tennis center you know, somebody's not going to be here next year. It might be you. It might be your tennis coach here. It might, but if I lose my faculty club because of that, you know, heads are going to roll. <laughs> and he had a, he picked up a book. He had a book. He had, we were sitting at a table there. He picked up a book and he threw it across the room into the, the like the bookcase there. And I remember walking out. We walked back across campus and Cliff said, I wouldn't worry about this. You know, Otis has a bad temper and he won't even remember this tomorrow. And I wanted to say, it's easy for you to say. It seems to me like he's never going to forget <laughs> it. Um, you know, so end of the story is we go out to see Mr. Boone. Mr. Boone calls me and he says, I want you to come out to the farm and bring Cliff and bring a pen. And I said, 
okay, I'll, I'll get Cliff in the pen, you know? <laughs> so I have no idea what that means. And we get out there and we sit down and I, Cliff and I ride out together and uh, Mr. Boone looks at Cliff and he said, Mr. Hagen, I'm sorry. Uh, looks at Mr. Hagen and says, um, I'm going to give you half a million dollars for this tennis center. And this guy seems like a nice enough fella, you know, uh, I'm going to give you a half a million dollars. It's going to be in Humana preferred stock, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, uh, so it, it seems to me like I'm just one man here and you've got that whole university and that whole athletic department that you run over there. And he literally had the pen on the paper, Oscar. Mm -hmm. And he, and he said, so you're going to match this and we can get, get started building. And Mr. Hagen said, no, there's no precedent for that. You know, there's a, we couldn't, we couldn't possibly match that and this type of money. And, you know, there's just no precedent for that at the university. And Mr. Ha uh, Mr. Boone backed up, pulled the pen off the paper, and he said, really, you can't match this donation. And Mr. Hagen said, go ahead, sign it, Hillary. We'll, we'll match it. So that's how, that's how that happened. And, you know, just an act of God. And then, you know, Hillary was such a great guy because he loved to, he loved to throw things out there and see, okay, how are you going to react? You know, what are you going to do now? And like a chess match. Yeah, thing. it was. And so for me, you know, to watch this in action, you know, I'd never raised a dollar, you know, really other than, you know, some small things. So it was, it was fun to see those guys kind of spar with each other. <laughs> Over the 45 years I've been here, I don't think there was anything that created more talk within the athletics department, that community, than what you just described there, how you went out and did it, <laughs> and how you could have easily lost your job yeah. if, if things just hadn't fallen aside. If Hillary Boone just backed off and said, I'm not giving anything, uh, I'm not as positive as Cliff was as that, Otis would have forgotten. It, yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know. At the end of that conversation, I asked, I asked Mr. Boone. I said, "Look, we're just so grateful, and you know." But I knew, oh my goodness, you know, Otis may not get, you know, his swimming pool. And uh, I said, Mr. Boone, I'm just curious. You know what? Uh, you know, have you spoken with Dr. Singletary yet about you know this? And he goes. Yeah, you know, I met with him yesterday, and I gave them a million dollars for the faculty club. And I said, oh, it's, so it's not a swim. No, it's the faculty club. And he said, uh, I said, so you did them both? And he goes, he goes, well, you seem like a nice enough fellow, and I heard you had some problems over there, and I didn't want to get you in any trouble. So, yeah, I went ahead and did them both. <laughs> uh, you know, and he was the type of person that he wouldn't drop a little person. And I don't mean you're a little person, but right. – Tennis at that time was not football or basketball. Right. And yet he, he dug in a little bit deeper to make it happen. Yeah. He, for some reason, he liked me and he loved tennis. And he, he actually loved basketball. That was his favorite sport. He was just too small to, to play. You know, he could play number one on our tennis team at Kentucky. But he loved it. And his, his best friend was uh, – would have been Warfield Donahue, I think, you know, mm -hmm. the, yeah. And he also played tennis at Kentucky. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the Stanford match in 88. Yeah. Um, you know, my favorite match, you know, it happens to be one that we lost, you know, uh, 
the best match I ever coached, 4,000 people there. It was in Athens. Uh, our number one player was a guy named Greg Van Inberg. Their number one player was a guy named David Wheaton, who ended up being top 10 in the world. Uh, Van Inberg beat him that day. Uh, our number two player was a guy named Mario Rincon, who was 170 in the world. And he played a guy, Jeff Durango, who ended up being top 30 in the world. Our our three was a guy named Richard Benson, who ended up being top 120 in the world in doubles and top 200 in singles. Theirs was Patrick McEnroe, you know, the brother of John, who ended up going to the semis of the Australian Open and being top 30 in the world. So you, you get the sense, you know, and they won it that year. You get the sense that it was, uh, you, you know, a lot of talent on the court. Van Inberg was a two-time All-American for us. Benson was a three-time All-American for us. Um, weird thing that happened in that match was their uh, number two player was crazy. I mean, great player, but just one of those guys that's just crazy back then. And he hit my guy after the match, and my guy pushed him back, and they defaulted them both out of the match. Well, my guy didn't play doubles, you know, so I mean, they could default him all they wanted. You know, it wasn't going to affect us, but you take that guy out of their lineup and we beat him bad at one doubles. So we had the chance to really win that match. Got a little unlucky, got a really bad call. Uh, I mean, a really bad call, Oscar. Not one of those, you know, maybe this is a bad one. And it, it was on match point, cost us the match. And it, and it probably cost us the team match. And, you know, that was another year I felt like we we were really good. We had a chance to win it all. They won it easily uh, after that. And that day we, we really should have beaten them. As you – the years become decades here, <laughs> you you get into the th 2000s. Yeah, you get up to 2004, 2005, 2000. At what point did you either get burnout or just want a new challenge or – you felt like, you know, I, it's my time. You know, from 2000, in 2002, we recruited a guy, Jesse Witten, and my son was playing for us. So we had two players who had been ranked number one in the United States in the juniors at different points in time. Um, you know, then, you know, my son got hurt. That really, like I say, that really hurt me, you know, because you, you can imagine that's, you know, what a personal thing that is to put in all that time and then have you know one ball you know one ball take you out because we really had chances to to win it all like say in 2002 had he not gotten hurt we had a really good shot the next three years without him you couldn't really recover in that we went to the sweet 16 no we we lost in the round of 32 but we were top 12 each of those years, we just got upset in the round of 32, three straight times at home somehow. Got to be some sort of record, you know, to do that. But it always had, you know, just weird things happen during that time. Um, you know, after after Witten graduated, my son graduated, and uh, a guy named Tigran Martirosian graduated, uh, we went through uh, two years there where we, you know, we missed the tournament. The only time in my career that we missed the tournament uh, once it went to a 64 field. I mean, there was a period there of almost a couple of decades where you were top 25 every year. Yeah, well, throughout my – we were top 25. I think we were only not top 25 in my 30 years 
I want to say, you know, four times, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure about that, but we were, it, it's close. And once we got going, you know, once we got past that first four years there, um, so I really felt like, you know, I, ha I had a couple guys that I recruited in six, seven, eight that, you know, I did just tough guys to coach, you know, very talented, kind of, kind of rolled the dice on talent over character. And I really thought, okay, if I get, you know, the next time I'm good, that's going to be my last run. Was it getting more difficult with the athletes that were playing the game later on? Or It's going to sound like that, but the answer was no. Okay. I, I just misread a couple guys. We, I had, I, one of the things I felt like I did really good was I was able to take people and teach them how to, you know, what we wanted, you know, this is how we want you to compete. This is how we want you to carry yourself. This is what it means to play at Kentucky. And, you know, those were things that I took very much to heart. And, you know, I kind of, I, I won't, don't want to say I lost my way in that a little bit because I knew exactly what I was doing. I, I felt like I could make these guys what I wanted them to be. Didn't work out. You know, so instead of being, you know, top 15, we were, you know, 30 there for a couple of years. And I just thought if I get it back, I'm going to, I'm going to make this one more run and then I'm going to step away. How difficult was it throughout your career to play in a sport that was pretty much overlooked, at least in Kentucky and having to play that schedule at the time of the year when basically 99% of the focus from Everybody from the media to the fans is on college basketball, big blue basketball. And even when you were having these great matches and great athletes and stuff, you know, it barely made the tail end of the news. And in some cases, it didn't even make the news. Right. Uh, you know, I won't say – I'm not going to say that it didn't bother me because it did bother me that we could be two in the country and, you know, there would be two sentences in the Herald-Leader about it. Um, we, we got up to two in the country three or four different years, you know. But, you know, I was really so into what I was doing. I mean, I, and we weren't doing it for – the only thing that made me mad was I felt like we could have – you know, maybe recruited a little bit better had we got more publicity. Um, maybe could have. Uh, how did got, you How did you recruit when you went out of state? Well, you I know, mean, I, I assume there wasn't any <laughs> AAU tournaments. Where no, forty coaches are there in the summer. Well, you don't have AAU tournaments, but you have, um, you know, national championships. So you would go to the national championships. Um, you what know, about foreign players? Oh, yeah, we recruited a lot of foreign guys, you know, because in tennis, unlike, okay, basketball, everybody gets a full. You know, women's basketball, everybody gets a full. You know, women's tennis, everybody gets a full. In men's tennis, you have four and a half scholarships, and you got to divide them up. Well, it's a huge disadvantage, you know, if your state doesn't really produce a lot of players, which we do not. Uh if you don't produce a lot of players, you're having to go to Georgia and Florida. So, and you're not just battling their in-state money. You know, they have the Hope Scholarships. They have, you know, I, I'm just telling you, Georgia and Florida that should never lose in any 
sport that gives partial scholarships or equivalency scholarships because you know with the hope scholarship we'll say they're at 75 percent you know how does I kentucky have, compete against that you just have to develop players <laughs> you've got to develop players and you got to go over overseas and you got to really pick your spots and you love international tennis as well as just college tennis did that help you yeah, I mean, it, it's an international game. Well, back then, you know, we didn't have the budgets to. Now they do. Um, so you really had to make, I think, really good decisions on, on players. And, you know, I always went with my just my gut. You know, I, I, I didn't I, – I try to watch people play and just how do I feel about them as a person? How do I feel about them as a player? And because you have four and a half scholarships, you cannot make a mistake. That's the thing that weighs on you as the tennis coach in the SEC is you cannot make a mistake because if you're playing on four and a half scholarships, Georgia's playing on seven essentially by the time they get their aid and Florida's playing on seven by the time they get their other aid and you miss on a guy on 80%. Okay. Now all of a sudden you're playing on 3.7 and they're playing on seven and you know, it's just really hard to overcome that. And but you know, we were we were able to. I mean, at, at times, but you just couldn't miss. And you know, that's what that's what's scary is. You know, that guy comes in, that guy gets hurt. Like in in uh, some of those years that we didn't do great. I mean, there was a reason. You know, like a guy had a hip injury and ended up having a hip surgery or something. Two thousand eleven, Elite Eight. I guess you could sense with Eric Quigley, this is going to be it or else, or if things go right, you know. Yeah. What what was it like living those and coaching those last two years? Well, you know, 2011 was a great year for us. Quigley had had a really good year as a sophomore. When I recruited him, I'd had no idea he was going to become the winningest college player of all time. Uh, real tribute to him, a real testament to him as, as a player. You know his work ethic and uh, all those all those things. Um, but he he was really good from the minute he walked on campus. Um, 2011, you know, really was a breakthrough year for us. In 2010, we went to 2000. Uh, his first year was 2009, and. Again, we got upset in the round of 32 at home. You know, we were 14 in the country, something. Got upset at home by Wake Forest. You know, just had a bad day at number one singles that day. Uh, but the next year we went to the Sweet 16. Now the next year, now we're in the, you know, the uh, Elite Eight. We had a unbelievable match with Louisville in the round of 32. Louisville was good and they're not good all the time, but this this was a really good Louisville team, and of course the NCAA put them in our bracket on purpose. You know, now the regional, but they could have gone somewhere else. You know, the regional stuff, but they were really good. They were up on us, uh, and our, my guy at number two, Alex Musilek, won that match. So that put us now in the Sweet 16. We're playing my best friend in coaching, who's Andy Jackson played for me at Kentucky, was on my first team at Kentucky. Uh, and 
we he's he was at Florida and we we beat them you know it wasn't uh, we had beaten them regular season down there we had lost to them in the finals of the SEC tournament down there uh, and then a victim of heat I might add Oscar our team that day a victim of the heat in in Gainesville Florida um, and then uh, beat them in the round of 16 that elite eight match unbelievable match um southern cal won four straight ncaa championships that was the third of that four steve johnson who's now top 30 in the world essentially beat quigley for the match um you know not much not much to do about it you know he was just a better better player than eric at that time so that was the you know a great match great run for us and you know, we, we actually had a match point in the doubles that had we won that match point, we could have won the match 4-3. And that was Quigley's junior year. That was his junior year. And then you come back in 2012, you have back-to-back top 10 finishes both years. Right. Quigley's senior year, you end up number six in the country. Yeah. Yeah. We had a – you know, we had a great year that year. The The highlight of that season was we went undefeated in the SEC. And, you know, every, you know, no one goes undefeated in the SEC. You know, it's just too, Not if you're playing Georgia. Yeah, it's just too tough, you know, because you're playing half of them on the road. And, um, you know, a lot of those years that I coached, Oscar, five SEC teams were in the top ten. So there were a lot of years where there was one year, for example, we were uh, we were four in the country, and we had to play the out bracket match in the SEC tournament because we tied for third in the conference with two other teams. We lost both tiebreakers, so we were the fifth seed and playing a top ten team. We had to play somebody to play a top ten team in the quarters. <laughs> you know that, and while that was you know, a really strong year, you know, they were all really strong years. That was just an exceptionally strong year. But uh, we went undefeated. Um, you know, we we beat, uh, you know, like you're talking about the big two, we beat Georgia down there, uh, had to be escorted out. It was such a heated match. You know, we were down. Um, we were actually down in that match, and it rained. You know, we're down a break at number one with Quigley, a break at number four with Jambi in the third set, okay, both of these. And we're on the way to a, a loss. <laughs> you know, we're well on the way to a 5-2 loss. It rained. It rained four times, four rain delays in that match. They, You know, because Georgia, the last thing they wanted to do was play Kentucky indoors. They finally took it indoors. We beat them 4-3. You know, just an act of God. The people come, you know, literally. John B., I don't know if you know him, but a very charismatic, six foot six uh, African kid, just one of the best players I've ever coached. Ended up being an All American for two years after I, I stepped down. And he won and put on quite a show there at the end. And just the crowd was literally coming out of the stands to get him after the match. And we had to go upstairs 
you know, wait till the crowd finally left before we could go to our bus, you know, it just, and didn't get a lot of help from the Georgia security. Didn't get a lot of help from their administration. Their fans were pretty well uh, <laughs> famous for not being the most hospitable right. hosts yeah. there are. Yeah. And then we, so we come back and uh, then we play Florida here and we beat them. So, you know, great, great year to go undefeated in the conference. And, you know, that played a lot in because I really wanted to go out on a high. And uh, then uh, we got upset in the round of, you know, we got to the final 16, but we got upset in the in the round of 16 that year, which uh, just kind of bad luck. I mean, Stanford had a really good team at certain spots and they had had guys out with injuries. And of course, you know how it is. I mean, they all are going to play against you and be ready to go. And that's that's what happened. They had a guy, Brad, Bradley Klon, who was who ended up being top fifty in the world, and he beat Quigley in that match. And uh, not that you know that's the only one, but I mean, Quigley that year only lost two matches his entire senior season. He lost to Baylor, and he lost that match to. Stanford, you know, so when he lost, it really hurt us. Our thanks to Coach Dennis Emery for being on Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dogs. Part two of Oscar's conversation with Dennis Emery will be released soon. For all of Oscar's past episodes of Conversations, you can find those online at oscarcombs.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Conversations for free through the Google Play Store, through iTunes and Stitcher. Search for at Wildcat News and subscribe. New episodes will be automatically downloaded to your mobile device and you will never miss an episode with the Big O. Oscar's news and views on the cats. Follow him on Twitter. He's at Wildcat News. I'm Bo Robinson thanking you for listening to this episode of Conversations with Oscar Combs presented by Rafferty's and Double Dogs. And as always, go Big Blue.